Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, your weekly look at all things royal brought to you from Mail Plus. I'm Jo Elvin and once again, we've got lots of royal news to discuss. They do keep us busy. So let's get straight to it and hear the latest from the Daily Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English. Rebecca, hello. Now, last week we discussed the princes and the press. We had the second part this week, but the expected fireworks didn't seem to go off. It didn't. It was it was it was a quite a damp squib, I have to say, and you know a, um, a slightly unimpressive piece of navel gazing. And it seems like the BBC did step down from some of the more egregious uh, allegations it was going to make at the eleventh hour. And as a result, uh, you know the palace aren't going to take any further action over it. But of course, it does still beg the question how what has happened in the last couple of weeks will affect um, the broadcaster's relationship with the palaces because, of course, William and Kate have already pulled out of uh, broadcasting a charity carol concert with them. And William still feels very, very hurt and bruised over the whole Bashir scandal. So I think we're going to have to wait and see how things uh, go with the BBC and the palaces over the next few months. Well, what was sparky was an intervention from former U.S. President Donald Trump, who gave his thoughts on the Sussexes, how grateful we are. Tell, tell us what he said. He didn't pull his punches, as, uh, as you would expect from uh, the former President Trump. He said that he never really liked Meghan from day one. He uh, thought she was using Harry and that she had been incredibly disrespectful to the Queen. And the trouble is, it, it is it is Donald Trump, isn't it? So those that don't like Meghan will see this as a you know an example of why they don't like her. And those that are very supportive of Meghan will just see this as, as Donald Trump spouting off again, I think. And meanwhile, comments made by the Sussexes in their Oprah interview are still causing trouble for Prince Charles, aren't they? It is. And, you know, cast your mind back to that Oprah interview. I mean, so much has happened to them, but it's, it's still really affecting, uh, you know, when it news when it comes to the royal family. And of course, one of the most shocking accusations was the um, suggestion by Meghan that was backed by Harry that a member of the royal family had made what she interpreted to be a very racist comment when they expressed concern over the colour of her future children's skin. Um, now, obviously, the Queen made very clear uh, that recollections may vary, but it obviously it was a very, very serious allegation to make. Um, and the only kind of qualification to that was Harry saying that it definitely wasn't the Queen and it wasn't Prince Philip. So, of course, that sparked a bit of a who's the royal racist guessing game. Um, now a new book has come out in America, which says that it believes that person to be the Prince of Wales. And slightly strangely, it's... Uh, it seems to have a source in the breakfast room where he had this discussion with uh, uh, his wife, the Duchess of Cornwall. Um, I mean, I think the credibility of the book has been massively called into question and Clarence House, have, I called it a complete work of fiction and not even worthy of comment. But I think what it shows us is that, uh, you know, this accusation isn't going to go away and, you know, still causes serious problems for the royal family. Uh, we've discussed the royals' policy of never complain, never explain, but this is something that they're extremely keen to distance themselves from, I would imagine. 
a tricky one for them because, of course, you don't want to give things like this any more credence than necessary. And in, in commenting, you do give the story around it more legs. But obviously, they felt that they needed to say something fairly quickly because it, it is a very, very serious allegation to make against someone. And um, I think it's something that they do feel they need to defend themselves against. Rebecca English there. Let's bring my panel in now here to discuss some of the big royal stories of the week are Charlotte Griffiths, who's the Mail on Sunday's editor-at-large and the Daily Mail's diary editor and my TV husband, Richard Eden. Welcome to you both. Richard, I'm going to start with you. Charles, of course, denies the racism claims, but unless Harry and Meghan come out and say, oh, it wasn't him, this is a tricky position. It really is. I mean, that was the thing about this Oprah interview, and this was probably the worst of their allegations. It was, it really was like a sort of bombshell on a timer, which mm. um, they could sort of detonate whenever they like. They left it hanging. That was what was so cruel about the allegation. And, you know, it's one of the worst things that you can say in this day and age is accuse someone of being a racist. And just to put it out there and, and leave it hanging. And they made it worse by narrowing down the suspects a bit. They, they said they wanted to make it clear that it wasn't Prince Philip, who was very ill, who was in dying at the time of their interview, and it wasn't the Queen. But they made clear it was senior royals. So immediately the focus then moved to Prince William, Prince Charles, Camilla, and it sort of stayed there. So this is very damaging. It's given this author in America the chance to... Um, make these new claims. Mm. Charlotte, of all the explosive bombshells that were in that Oprah interview, this is the one that sticks. This is the one that won't go away, isn't it? Yeah, because they haven't given us an answer, so we'll just speculate and speculate. And um, in royal circles, people speculate even that it's actually a minor royal and she's just blown it up to, you know, to, make, to make us speculate for longer and longer. And then there's the, the idea that it could be a very senior royal, like Prince Charles, who has said it's fiction. And this is the closest he's ever come to saying this whole thing is nonsense by but saying it's fiction. I'm really take. I've read the claims in that book and it's, it's, it's quoted dialogue. What, yeah. what is the source? I'm not familiar with this, this author, but I am sceptical about this book, I must say. Um, it, yeah, it just gives anonymous sources. Mm. Um, and it reports a conversation. It says, Charles said yes, to Camilla this, that's and Camilla said to Charles that. I mean, that's, how, that's how bold. can anyone know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Charles is right to say that that bit is fiction. It can only be fiction. It's written like a story. Um, but, but is the actual claim itself fiction? Well, I think one of the crucial things to remember is that in the Oprah interview, um, Harry and Meghan gave different versions, actually, yeah. of, of what had happened, about the timing of when these claims had been made. And it seemed like they, they hadn't really been clear about what they wanted to say, and it was just thrown out there. I don't know if they regret it now or if they're happy for it to be hanging, but it's um, very cruel, and I do think, yeah, very damaging. Mm. Let's move on to Donald Trump, never knowingly not explosive, <laughs> um, who says Harry's been used and used terribly, Richard. Terribly. Do you find yourself agreeing with Mr. Trump? <laughs> I mean, obviously, there's a lot of history there between Donald Trump and Meghan, who'd criticised him um, before she met Prince Harry as a misogynist and very divisive, that sort of thing. So he doesn't like her and he's never really made any secret of that. <laughs> Um, He's not one to hide his emotions on any given topic, really. The, the use thing is, is very interesting, though, uh, because I've always got the impression that sort of Prince Harry was happy to be used almost. Yeah, I mean, yes, maybe Meghan's using him for 
her own agenda, what she wants. Well, Harry's always claimed that you know he, she just enabled what he always wanted. Maybe That's he's her using thing. her. Yeah. He needed somebody really intelligent with a voice, and she's famously got a voice, and she, she's very incredibly articulate. Maybe he's using her to finally push through his own agenda. I certainly don't get any, any impression from anything that he regrets marrying her or that he feels he's being exploited. Um, I mean, who knows, maybe one day his attitude will change, but um, I don't know. I mean, Trump just doesn't know how Harry feels, does he? I mean, the cynic in me thinks that, you know, this is a fun way for Donald Trump to get back in the news. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, sure, it, yeah. it was a fascinating interview yeah. and um, it, it's interesting for people here. And I, I think perhaps also he sees her as a potential future political opponent. Well, yeah, mm. quite possibly. Yeah. He also says, Charlotte, that Meghan has been very disrespectful to the Queen as the Sussexes have always been so keen to stress how much they love Her Majesty. Mm. Will that comment stick with them, or do you think they're not bothered about I don't Trumpy. think they're bothered about anything that Donald Trump no. says. <laughs> um, but, you know, they do always insist that they, they love the Queen and that they're, you know, they, want, they have her best interests at heart. But I think time and time again, actually, <laughs> that is being disproved. And, um, you know, but I don't really think they'll care what he thinks, to be honest. No. Now, Richard, just, let's just have a word on the next instalment, the second instalment of the princes and the press. Now, you didn't really hold back last week. You were quite damning in your assessment of the journalism. Did your opinion change with the second instalment? Look, the things I have to do for this job, frank frankly, <laughs> if I didn't do my job, I wouldn't have wanted to watch that programme. And I did. I watched the second part. And I just thought, frankly, I think it's a disgrace. And I hope there are repercussions about it. Because the more we learn about Amal Rajan and his... Last week, we discussed his Republican views. And I thought that... It was an inappropriate person to make a documentary about the royal family. But now a lot of um, stuff has come to light about views he's expressed in the past, in tweets and this sort of thing, where they're frankly very disturbing. He said, you know, very unpleasant things. And so then it does look more like he had an agenda. And why did no one at the BBC question, is he the right person to be making a, a really important documentary of this kind? And I mean, just, just to give you one example, in the second part of that documentary, they, they, they were all portraying how terrible the press was, and there were loads of stories about um, Harry and Meghan's new house in Windsor, and the impression was that, oh, the press has been terribly unfair talking about the cost of this house. Nowhere did they look at the facts of the case and about why they didn't move into an apartment that had been prepared for them mm. in Kensington Palace. That literally wasn't even mentioned. So it seemed like there was a real strong agenda behind this programme. Mm. Charlotte, do you think that there's any simmering in the war, it turns out, between you know, the BBC and the palace? I, I think they did. I have, I have heard that they have edited it down, and that is why we didn't see it on the iPlayer in the build-up. So, but whether that has actually placated the palace, I don't think so. I, I don't think that, that, that this has helped at all, really. I think it's going to get even worse. Well, they've taken their Christmas carol show and run away, haven't they? So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, they will they have been shocked that, yeah. you know, it is our state broadcaster. We all, I mean, I know foreign viewers of this show might not realise that, but we all have to pay for the BBC £159 yeah. a year. So for that, they have a responsibility and, and they do need to be responsible with their programmes. And I do not think this was a responsible documentary. They had to give so much airtime, didn't they, to Meghan's lawyer that they actually, apparently in the editing process, 
you know, the, the lawyer's statement had to be there in full, so other things had to be edited down that may have been fairer towards the royal family. But, you know, Meghan's lawyer was there, so her whole, her, her whole edit went in. Mm. And that's pretty controversial in itself, I think. Indeed. Let's move on now. Let's turn now to a royal tour with a difference. Prince Charles has arrived home after a trip to Barbados, which is to become a republic after choosing to lose the Queen as head of state. Royal writer Victoria Murphy was on the trip and we spoke to her earlier. Well, this trip was arranged because Barbados um, has announced that it's becoming a republic and Prince Charles was invited to be there for that moment when that happened. Barbados is remaining a member of the Commonwealth of 54 countries, despite no longer being a Commonwealth realm. And that's something that, that both countries, I think, have been very keen to emphasise and very keen to emphasise those continued ties. During the ceremony, uh, Charles made a very significant speech, a very landmark speech, partly because he was delivering it at such a landmark moment, but also because of the fact that he directly addressed slavery and Britain's colonial past. And this hasn't come up in a speech by a member of the royal family in the Caribbean before, despite multiple visits over the years to the region. You know, it wasn't an apology, and which is what some are calling for, and some are also calling for uh, reparations for slavery, because, of course, the impact of that regime for so many decades still looms large for inequalities today. Barbados' Prime Minister has previously spoken about reparations. She's previously said, you know, there should be an apology and there should be a plan for funding to come from countries who benefited from slavery to redress the imbalance, and that was about justice. And um, those conversations were not had uh, by signatories publicly, but certainly this is very much an ongoing conversation. The mood of the trip was, you know, it was so interesting. Um, and I think what was so fascinating about it, and it was at times it was very somber, and at times it was very celebratory, but what made it such a unique sort of royal visit, if you like, is because throughout the visit, Charles's status, you know, totally transformed halfway through his visit. So he arrives and, you know, he was technically at the time uh, future head of state in the country. And obviously we knew that that wasn't that was going to be overturned. But he he arrived as a prince of the realm um, and was afforded all the formal welcomes of that role. Um, and then by the time he left, he was you know, he had no formal role within Barbados and he was a visiting head of a visiting dignitary effectively. And so it, it was it was really fascinating to sort of see that. And you could you know you could that was played out really visually throughout the ceremony. It was very tangible. Um, and so you had him at the service arriving last, you know, the, the, the most important dignitary, he arrived last. And then there was this final salute to the monarchy. And he sat on this sort of chair in the middle of the throne, if you like. And you had this incredible symbolism of the royal standard flag being lowered, and then actually folded away right in front of us. And, you know, that absolutely marked the end, the end of the Queen being head of state there. Um, and then the presidential standard was raised, and the new president, Dame Sandra Mason, she sat on the chair that Prince Charles had previously sat on and she delivered her speech. And at the end of the service, when everyone left, she was standing at the front, she was there and Charles was behind her and left after her. So you saw played out this really clear visual of the status that he had at the start of his visit, at the start of the handover ceremony and then the status that he had at the end and, and how, how different those were. It is a very big moment for Barbados, but also... It does have significance globally as well, because there are now 14 countries outside of the UK, so 15 in total, that still have the Queen as head of state. And there have been questions raised um, with Barbados making this move, the first country to do so in such a long time, as to whether or not this will now have a kind of ripple effect and whether other countries who have the Queen as head of state will now decide to press on and, and make their own changes as well. Victoria Murphy there. Let's bring our panel in back. Now, Charlotte, it was all smiles, but... 
You can imagine for the royals, after 400 years of history, mm. must have hurt a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the Queen was so gracious, um, sending very warm congratulations, very good turn of phrase there, congratulating them on freeing themselves from her. Um, but uh, it probably hurt a bit. But I think it's really important to the Queen that they're still going to be part of the Commonwealth, and that's really what really matters to her the most. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's time, I suppose. She understands that. She's a wise woman. Do you think this might have um, some sort of domino effect, Richard? Is this a victory for people who campaign against the royal family? Well, I certainly saw um, the organisation Republic trying to make the most of it, you know, hoping it will be, as you say, a domino effect. But I'm not sure. I mean, every country's got their own... Um, politics and an agenda ab about this sort of thing and the Commonwealth is what's um, mattered to the Queen since um, many countries gained their independence and it's all about being a you know a warm friendly family of nations um, so I think they just accept that changes are inevitable. Mm. This is the first one since 1992 though so it's a pretty slow domino effect if it is a domino <laughs> effect. <laughs> yeah but Charlotte we saw the videos of Charles appearing to have a bit of a a bit of a naughty moment, a bit of fall, fall asleep during a ceremony. And we talk about not overloading the Queen, but, you mm. know, Charles has been around the world in, 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 at quite some speed lately. <laughs> Do we need days. to be careful about not ruining his health as well? Well, he is 73, but it was 3.30am in the UK when he nodded off in Barbados. And, uh, yeah, he is working really hard, but this is what he's been building up to his whole life. 73 is no great age in this, <laughs> in this day and age. Um, Not I don't, think we, need to, I don't <laughs> think we need to worry about overloading him. I mean, this is his chance to shine. He's been waiting 73 years for it. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. It was 3.30 a.m. I mean, I'm an ex-3 a.m. girl. You're still a 3 a.m. person. Come it's on, we're still hour. going at 3.30 a.m. <laughs> it's late. Yeah. It's late. Actually, they're 25. It's just the, the jobs <laughs> they do. Uh, but, Richard, what did you make about these comments about slavery? I thought it was a really brave speech by Prince Charles. I mean, to my knowledge, it's the first time that a royal family member's made a big speech that um, discusses slavery. And, you know, you've got to um, come from the perspective that the history of the royal family is tied up with slavery. Um, you know, one of Prince Charles's ancestors, James II, was the head of the Royal Africa Company, which was the company which... Um, oversaw the, the biggest transfer of slaves from Africa to the Americas of any company in the world. You know, so they benefited from that in the same way that most aristocrats in, in Britain did. It's just part of our history. Mm. But history is what it is. And, you know, he wanted to, to address that in a serious way um, and in a way that's sympathetic. Um, but then it's politically is very contentious because... You know, there are calls for reparations, there yeah. are calls for apologies, which is a whole complex matter, really. Mm. Well, did you know that the Queen used to do panto? Oh, yes, she did. <laughs> and while that might be behind her now, Windsor Castle is showing some of the costumes that Her Majesty then Princess Elizabeth and her sister Princess Margaret wore for some Christmas shows put on at the Royal Residence during the Second World War. Jess King made this report. It's panto season. Oh, yes, it is. And it seems the festive fairy tales and slapstick humour are popular among the young royals. But who knew the head of the family was once a leading light on the Christmas stage? The brand new exhibition here at Windsor Castle is raising the curtain on wartime pantomimes performed by the Queen, then Princess Elizabeth, and her sister, Princess Margaret. 
During the Second World War, the siblings spent much of their time at the Berkshire Royal Residence, away from the bombing in London. Alongside local schoolchildren, they staged a series of pantos, and now some of the rare and carefully preserved costumes are on display for the first time. Curator Caroline de Guiteau says it was a unique period in the Queen's life. I think it's quite unusual. Um, I mean, in a sense, we could look at it in a, in a more historic tradition, the idea of fancy dress, of costume, of dressing up, if you like. Um, but I think in, certainly it's, it, was, it was quite an unusual thing. There were four altogether, the first in 1941. Um, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty was in 1942. And then Aladdin, and the final one uh, in 1944 was Old Mother Red Riding Boots, which is perhaps a bit less familiar um, to audiences today. I think we've all probably heard of the others. Um, and in researching the exhibition, I discovered that Old Mother Red Riding Boots was actually almost like a compilation of some of the, um, some famous and favourite scenes from other pantomimes that were kind of amalgamated together in a very clever way by Mr. Hubert Tanner, who was the headmaster of the Royal School. And he worked very closely with the Royal Princesses to bring these productions together. The teenage princesses performed in this very room for family and friends. But who played the hero and who was the villain? They both, in a sense, had very leading roles. They were definitely principals amongst the cast. Um, Princess Elizabeth generally took the male lead for the first three pantomimes. And then by the time of 1944, obviously, she was aged 18. She was a young lady. And so it was felt more appropriate for her to play a female lead. Um, Princess Margaret likewise took very um, leading roles as well. So it felt like that there was a real sharing out of those two things, I would say. It's thought that in the Queen's 1943 performance of Aladdin, one of the audience members was a dashing young Greek sailor called Philip, perhaps the start of their own fairy tale romance. Royal author Robert Hardman says the shows were an enjoyable distraction from the harsh realities of war. The King found them incredibly moving. I think, you know, obviously he had the the, the weight of the world on his shoulders, literally. Um, so for him, it was a wonderful sort of distraction. And he writes in his diaries about how, you know, he just he was sort of in floods of tears watching it each year, and he loved it. Uh, it was the very early days of, um, of, of a friendship, really, rather than a courtship between Princess Elizabeth and Prince Philip. But, um, you know, definitely they, they, uh, they got to know each other um, better during those wartime visits to Windsor. And, Apparently, we are told, um, Prince Philip found the whole thing very amusing and would laugh at all these pretty corny jokes. I mean, you can imagine what um, a sort of wartime panto joke was like at Windsor Castle. It was, it was, it was full of, you know, thigh-slapping humour. Um, and he, by all accounts, found it all very funny. Um, everybody had a lovely time. Well, there are plenty of panto barons, dukes and dames. But just one queen was the star of this castle's stage. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to Rebecca English, Victoria Murphy, Charlotte Griffiths, Richard Eden, and you, our loyal royal viewers. We'll see you next week. Goodbye.